Everyone is the first last time. Walk away, then we hit rewind. A little touch, a little buzz. Don't know what keeps keeping it up. Is it your heart or mine? Is it whiskey or wine? Is it something in the night making us wanna cross that line? Hello and welcome to episode 227 of section 138. I'm your host, Mark Colley, as always, joined by Bryson Poza. We don't have Jacob with us this week, but it's all the same. The Blue Jays are celebrating, taking three of four from the Baltimore Orioles. They sweep the doubleheader. They have a wild game on Tuesday night, and then they take the series finale four to one just a couple minutes ago as we speak now. Bryson, this series could not have gone much better for the Blue Jays. How are you? You know, I know I predicted, um, I think we both predicted a split mark, actually. And I think after that Monday doubleheader, though, my expectations immediately jumped to what Jacob was at with three out of four. After you swept the Orioles in that Monday game, or just in those Monday games, I should say, it was right. The writing was on the wall for you to be able to win this series one way or another. And the fact that they went out today and made a statement game, especially from Alec Manoa after the fireworks from yesterday, um, you know, off of, uh, you know, Blue Jays legend Brian Baker, who, may I add, is more relevant as an Oriole than he was when he was actually with this organization. So kind of glad that they were able to put a statement game in today from Manoa. I'm sure if it wasn't a safe situation, he likely would have went the distance. He was he pretty much had that feeling today, and he was dominating the Orioles. And I feel very confident with that, knowing too, down the stretch, he's gonna. Those are pretty much the Orioles and the Rays are gonna be the teams that he's playing pretty much uh, throughout his next couple of starts down the stretch. You got to feel really good of where you're at coming out of this series. Yeah, I know the Jays had that game earlier this year where Manoa was at what was it like 80 or 85 pitches, and they pulled him before the ninth, but. It really did feel like tonight, if it wasn't a safe situation, if the Jays were leading by more than three runs, the ball would have been in Manoa's hands because he had dominated the entire night. He only gave up one run the entire night, and even that, it was earlier on in the game. I think it was the bottom of the first when he gave up the first run of the game. So that was really the only time that the Orioles got to Manoa, and for the rest of the night, he was dominating. Yes, he was at 95 pitches, but when you're asking him to go one more inning, that is probably at most going to be 15 pitches. You're looking at a scenario where he's maxing out at 110. And I think for Manoa, I don't know what his career high is. I imagine it's somewhere around there. But honestly, I could have seen it happening. So let's start, before we get to any of the controversy and any of the awesome performances that we had earlier in this series, let's start talking about Manoa because we've already discussed it a little bit. Should the Jays have let him go that extra inning or was it the right call to go to someone like Jordan Romano in that situation and secure the win in what turned out to be a game that decided two games in the standings, right? Jays lead by four and a half. Now, if they had lost the game today, they would have been leading by two and a half in the standings. So it holds a lot of importance. So was it the right decision for the Blue Jays to pull Alec Manoa and put in Jordan Romano, even though they were leading by three? Yeah, I, I'm fine with the move that they made tonight. There's been other, I guess scenarios earlier this year uh, this year where you know not exactly a save situation or the fact is you know just going into the eighth inning you're up by more than one run and the Jays have pulled Manoa like you said there's been lots of different scenarios this year where he's obviously been a little bit frustrated and it's nothing personal he just wants to pitch um but you know situations where you probably could have wondered back then 
Could have probably sent him out for another inning or two. Uh, I think today was definitely a start, though, where I was fine with eight innings. Um, and I think it was something that probably should have been expected, of course, if you were up 4-1 uh, heading into the ninth inning. And, of course, if it wasn't a safe situation, like I mentioned off the top, he likely would have went the entire way. So it, it's hard to send him out there for a complete game as much as it would have been really cool with Jordan Romano behind him in the bullpen. We've talked about how dominant Jordan Romano himself has been also uh, over the course of the uh, the last month. I mean, he's pretty much just dominating hitters. He's been getting better and better. The velocity's up. We've been talking about all of that pretty much since that All-Star break. So you can't, you know, it just, for me, it'd be pretty hard to avoid the closer like that in a safe situation, even though it was three runs. Uh, and in, in a time like you were talking about as well, about how close this pennant race truly is, this wild card race truly is. Um, and that's completely fine. I mean, you usually don't get eight innings out of anybody anymore. We know how rare that is. And the fact is, as well, you go through two pitchers this game, including Alec Manoa, and you go to a guy like Jordan Romano who hasn't pitched at all this series. His last pretty much appearance was on the weekend uh, when he got out of that big jam in Pittsburgh. And throughout this entire series, he wasn't playing, um, or he wasn't pretty much appearing at all. So he was fresh. um, And on top of that, the guys that were pretty much pitching in this series, other than uh, Jordan Romano, uh, they were they got the night off as well. So I thought this lined up really good um, from what they were talking about. Everything really lined up with their starting rotation this series, pretty much what they decided to do in Pittsburgh. Everything that they planned ahead of time worked out successfully, um, besides the start from Mitch White, obviously, but pretty much going back to Alec Manoa, I was fine with it, and I think he was a little bit more you know, accepting of it as well, as much as he had that comment after saying, you better bring your brass knuckles if you're going to take me out of the game, pretty much what he said in his interview. But you can tell right after that last out in the eighth, when he stepped on first brace, when he was covering for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., he immediately started smiling. And usually you see that from him when he, he's immediately, I guess, just mentally done for the night or he's just done in general. Um, he's not exactly as focused as you saw the night before staring down the Orioles dugout when they, they won that third game of the series. So I think he knew he was done. I think really what he was striving for, especially knowing it's a 4-1 game, to go eight innings and to hand things off to Jordan Romano. But you better believe if that was more than a three-run deficit or a three-run lead that you had, you better believe that he was going to have a hard time giving up the ball uh, heading into the ninth inning like that. So everything lined up good. Romano's been dominant, and I'm sure that he was ready for it. It was a really good handoff, um, pretty much giving Romano the ball in the ninth. I was actually worried at first they weren't even going to let him go to the eighth just because of what we saw this year. His pitch count was at 90. So the fact is that they let him go the eighth inning. Uh, That was fine with me, and that's really all I was looking for in that situation tonight. Yeah, I think we're having a different conversation if the bullpen was in a different situation. Like, I know the bullpen was stressed from the day before on Tuesday because Mitch White doesn't go deep into the game, and you have to have guys like Trevor Richards and Anthony Bass and Yusei Kikuchi come into the game. And But I think it's a different scenario because the only pitcher you're going to is Jordan Romano, and Jordan Romano, as you mentioned, hasn't pitched at all this series, and even... With that considered, the Jays have an off day tomorrow as well. They have the day off on Thursday before they regroup and travel to Texas for a three-game set. So because of that built-in off day and because of the rest Jordan Romano already had, I think it's perfectly acceptable to use him, um, especially considering what we've seen from the Jays earlier this year. To be honest, based on the patterns we've seen earlier this year, the fact that they pulled him at 80 pitches in that game when he was primed to throw a complete game, the fact that we've pulled him, seen him pulled around 90 pitches many times, the fact that we've seen that pattern combined with the bullpen rest and everything we just talked about, 
Doesn't surprise me that he didn't pitch the ninth. And honestly, I think it's the right decision. Um, getting one inning out of him in this game is not going to make a difference in how Friday's game goes, Saturday's game goes, Sunday's game goes. It's not going to make a difference in any of those games. What might, might make a difference, although subtle it may be, is the amount of innings he pitches and the amount of pitches he throws in each individual game. Because we know he's never thrown this amount in a professional season before. So, yes, that factor is small in the grand scheme of things, but I think in this situation where you have a rested bullpen, it should be a consideration that you make. And, of course, is it worth the risk of him throwing 110 pitches to get three outs when you have the bullpen arms available? I don't think it is. So I agree with the decision to pull him, even though obviously you always cheer for a complete game, especially with the Blue Jays, who haven't had a true complete game, I think since 2018 was the last time they had a nine-inning complete game. Or Actually, I think it was Mark Burley in 2015 or 2016. I know there was the, the rain out and the weird situation where there's a five-inning complete game. Regardless, it's been a while, and you want to see it again. And Alec Mono seems like he has the best shot of doing that because he's come close a couple times this year. But when you're in the middle of a pennant race, there are bigger matters at hand. I think the Blue Jays saw the truth in that. Um, okay, let's talk about all the controversy in this series because there's a lot to get to. Let's start with game one, the first game of the doubleheader on Monday. We go into the third inning. The first base runner, Kevin Gosman, is pitching with. Of course, we know he gave up that home run in the first inning, but the first base runner he's pitching with, the first time he's pitching out of the stretch. He does his little stutter step, as he always does, shifts his weight to his front foot, back foot, front foot, back foot a couple times, and then throws the pitch. And second base umpire Jeff Nelson instantly calls a balk. Um, I think the reaction was pretty swift on social media in terms of outlining why Jeff Nelson was wrong. Um, to me, the thing about this situation is, okay, maybe it's a balk. Like, it's never been called before. It hasn't been called after, but maybe it is a balk. Like, you look at the video, yeah, maybe Gosman doesn't come fully set. And we know the definition of a balk is kind of all over the place, so it is a little bit subjective. Yes, maybe it is a balk. Block, but you can't sit there not warn Kevin Gosman before the game that this is something you're paying attention to, and then the immediate pitch after is the exact same pitch, the exact same setup, the exact same stretch delivery from Kevin Gosman, and it's not called a single time by Jeff Nelson. He calls that one pitch and never again. If it's a balk that one time, it's a balk for the rest of the game, and that's my problem with that call. You can't call it once, not have a conversation with Kevin Gosman beforehand, and then never call it again. What's the point of calling it that one time? So that's the issue that I have with this. Not that it might, it probably isn't a balk, because to be honest, watching the video, I understand how you can watch it and say that's a balk. But if you're never going to call it again, then it's not a balk. You can't pick and choose to only call it once and then ignore it the rest of the game. So that's the problem that I have with that call. And then, of course, Jeff Nelson has some other stuff in this series that we'll get to, but let's stick with the Bach first, and then we'll get to the other stuff. Yeah, he's another one besides Brian Baker, who I guess are just the highlights of this series in such a bad way. And this isn't the first run-in that this team has had with Jeff Nelson. I'm sure everyone is reminded of what happened in April uh, when he basically had the horrific strike zone and pretty much got the entire dugout as well, uh, furious with his calls. But yeah, I mean, you go back to this doubleheader, and not only was that the same move 
that Gosman did all start. This is something that he's done all season where he kind of rocks a little bit with his back foot. And then the idea of his motion, as much as, again, people who don't know what a Bach is or who people who aren't as familiar with the Bach or don't even notice just anything he does with his motion can pretty much vouch and say, yeah, you know, that kind of looks like one or is he even allowed to do that? But the key to that rocking motion that he has is that the idea, even if he doesn't, show it in the best, um, you know, if he just doesn't have a good way of showing it, um, of course he's trying to pitch. He's not exactly trying to perfect his windup or pitching out of the stretch. The, the, the idea is to have that pause, that little pause right before he throws the ball. So technically it's not a box. So regardless if he's done a good job at showing that or not in certain pitches, it's confused a lot of people. He mentioned it after the game that this is something that has kind of been an area of conversation all season with, you know, umpires pulling him aside half innings when they're, you know, just checking for sticky stuff or whatever and saying, you know, you have to pause or, you know, you can't really, you kind of have to slow that down a bit to show that you're not going to balk. And it's something that Kevin Gosman knows really, I guess just knows really well this season that's been happening to him. So, he explained his side. You saw when the moment happened of how furious he did get, and really, Bo Bichette's another MVP for what he did that game in the first game of the doubleheader. If he, you know, Kevin Gosman staying in that game to pitch pretty much aligned the rest of the series up in how the Jays pretty much predicted it the weekend before. So that, as much as Bo Bichette's been playing lights out, that's another underrated moment. The fact that he kept Kevin Gosman in that game because he was furious uh, at Jeff Nelson. He went right up to his face. And he basically went right after him for making that call. And the facts are the facts. And pretty much what you think about this is true. And there's no other way for me to believe it other than what Kevin Gosman did say is that this was premeditated for the reasons of that. There was no conversations beforehand. And the fact of just Jeff Nelson showing, you know, I don't know if he's a, you know, him personally off the field or whatever, but as an umpire, it just shows you that this is something that Jeff Nelson would do in terms of, you know, her, his horrific strike zones, which happened, of course, in this series again, or just, you know, the ego that he has behind home plate, you know, ejecting people, everything. It, the fact that he's just doing that without throwing any warnings, it's something that you can see him doing 100%. And really, Kevin Gosman, for a guy that's pretty calm when he pitches, he doesn't usually get rattled like that or get angry or show that much frustration or emotion. Clearly something was off. Clearly Jeff Nelson did something wrong to piss him off. And really when you saw it, you can understand, you know, why Kevin Gosman got mad at that. For First of all, even before he explained that, you know, it, it's something that's been a known issue all year that I don't think we really knew of that much because, of course, it's been happening quietly. The fact that he does the exact same thing every single start this season, and I'm sure in the past as well over the past couple of years, and all of a sudden now he gets called for a balk. And then, of course, you mentioned it, the side-by-side -side video of his pitch, the very next at-bat, not later on in the game, the very next at-bat. So you figured the next batter of the at-bat, that's going to be, of course, where you see the major difference because he's going to make sure that he's adjusted his stretch or whatever, um, his motion. He does the exact same thing like you were talking about. There's no other way to put it other than this was premeditated. And the fact that Kevin Gosman had to deal with that, of course, Bo Bichette saved him from the game, yes, or saved him from being ejected because he was well on his way to doing that. But the fact that Gosman, you know, after that 
kind of pause or that moment where he got pushed away from Jeff Nelson, the fact that he was able to simmer down once again, get out of that inning and give him a nice stare down after that, that was definitely another key factor of that. The fact that he was able to overcome that, you know, after his teammates got there for him and the fact that he was able to complete a really nice outing that he had. And it was six and two thirds with six strikeouts. um, And of course, he only allowed two earned runs. So that was a really good start from him, of course. He was able to bear down with Jeff Nelson, who was a highlight of this series once again in a very negative way. But the truth is, and I feel like every other umpire, majority of the umpires would say this, is that before you make a, a bot call like that, unless it's very obvious or unless it's something way off that you've, I guess, happens the odd time, this is something where you give warnings out. This is something that you don't see on TV necessarily, or even if you're at the game. This is something that's very quietly done on the side. This is something that usually is kind of a, you know, it's not a, a written rule, but it's something that, of course, you don't want to go out and make calls like that that are very rare without giving some sort of warning. So that is what makes it very frustrating, and I fully understand why Kevin Gosman got mad at that, and of course the fact that he was able to settle down after that and move on past that very quickly without even changing his stretch or changing his rocky motion to begin with was even another highlight, and of course just shows how stupid of a call that was from Jeff Nelson. Yeah, it's even more impressive, I guess, what Bo Bouchette did and what Kevin Gosman was able to do after that in terms of what we saw the next night when John Schneider seemed to get a very quick hook from Jeff Nelson when he was arguing ball and strike calls. Um, the fact that Bobochette ran in there and saved the day and the fact that Kevin Gosman was able to stay composed and continue to pitch and get out of that, not just that inning, but continue to pitch a stellar game for the rest of the way. Like you say, six plus innings. Um, that's very impressive for Kevin Gosman to do that. So, um, and you look at kind of the, the ripple effect of what could have happened. That was game one of four and four games in three days. We talked about the bullpen um, being kind of rested, you know, Jordan Romano not having to pitch in this series. If Kevin Gosman gets tossed in that third inning. I think we're talking about a completely different series. We're talking about a series where the Blue Jays have to go to essentially everyone they went to in Game 3 on Tuesday in Game 1 of the doubleheader on Monday. So we're talking Yusei Kikuchi. We're talking Trevor Richards. We're talking Anthony Bass. We're talking essentially most of the relievers in the Blue Jays' bullpen. It's all hands on deck in that doubleheader. And yeah, they probably still win game two just based off of the offensive performances. But then, you know, if, we, if we're talking about them losing game one and then losing game three and winning game four, we're, we're talking about a series split and the Jays staying two and a half up on Baltimore versus the scenario we're in now, which, I mean, we'll talk about this. I think the Blue Jays now being four and a half up, I don't want to speak too soon, but I think there's probably about a 95% chance that they just ended the Orioles postseason odds. And I don't want to speak too soon. I know that might be a little bit of a hot take, but I think the situation we're in now, four and a half games is certainly not insurmountable, especially when you have still remaining, I think it's five games head-to-head against each other or six games head-to-head. I think it's six games after this series, two, three-game series. But um, it's certainly not an insurmountable lead when you have that many games against each other over the the course of the season but you look at the hill that the Orioles now have to climb they have to either match essentially match the Blue Jays in every other game and go take five of six of the remaining games uh, that's the task that is in front of Baltimore right now and of course they can pick up games elsewhere if the Jays slow down but it's a tough and daunting task for them to complete over 25 games left in the year so 
again, I don't want to speak too soon. I don't want to give any, any too many hot takes, but I think the Blue Jays may have ended the Orioles season here by taking three of four. And I think a large part of that is kind of the ripple effect of Kevin Gosman staying in the game, staying composed, getting help from Bobichette to de-escalate the situation, saving the bullpen in game one, saving it for game two and game four where they really needed it, and then of course game three to stay in it even though they didn't end up winning it. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that hot take before we get to any of the other controversial things in this series. I mean, if things can sustain the way they are in terms of you know expectations with the Jays not going on a cold spell even though we've seen that a few times and the Jays taking care of Baltimore the rest of this or especially that next one in Toronto um there's nothing wrong with what you said there for me I was thinking about this when the series started and this kind of kind of trickles back to what I guess I told you guys a, a couple weeks ago in terms of my expectations changing and, you know, just getting into the playoffs in terms of I don't care what wild card spot it is, the fact that you're getting in. And that kind of relates to Baltimore because as much as you're worried about, you know, keeping up with the Rays and keeping up with the Mariners or even maybe wanting to pass them as some people are wanting to do, I think the bigger thing right now, and this is just my opinion, of course people might have different opinions, is taking care or ending Baltimore season. Um you know, rather than, of course, you want to catch those teams again, but I think the sole focus should be on that, and the fact of how the schedule lines up, that you have two more series left with them, I think that they have the potential to do that in terms of just, you know, me just saying that, but the Jays don't have any games against them, and you're relying on help. They have this right in front of them if they want to do this, and really, again, from what you were talking about and how they're on the right track, another thing I was thinking about is that the goal for me as well, another my opinion, and of course this relates to what you were saying, is especially that last series of the season, as much as it'd be cool to clinch a playoff spot at Camden Yards, I think we talked about that last week, making that series as meaningless as possible is also something that should be a high priority right now because entering that last weekend in Baltimore or that last week in October, that uh, early October, if that series means nothing you know, you're feeling really good about yourself. And of course, you have a playoff spot locked in. You can maybe focus ahead of times in terms of getting that rotation ready, kind of building up to or preparing for whoever you're going to play rather than taking care of them to clinch a playoff spot during that series. It just puts you in a really a much better spot. That's just the way I think of it. And I think a lot of people also support that. But the fact is you need to take advantage of these games, which the Jays have over the course, of course, this last series, but you have two more to go and you have a couple other, you know, e you know I don't want to say easy, but you have definitely series that you can win, especially coming up this weekend. And on top of that, you have the Orioles and you also have the Rays and the Yankees, especially with the Orioles. You have the opportunity to end their season. You were on the right track after what we saw this week. Of course, the jobs nowhere close to being done, but they are well on their way if things continue to hold up the way they're holding up. And, of course, you want the Jays to be even better uh, than they've been showing. But, of course, over the last 10 games, as much as we've been, you know, talking about how up and down they are, all of a sudden over the last 10 games, they've been just as good as the Rays and the Mariners now, who are all 8-2 and two in their last 10. And, of course, the Orioles are now 500 in their last 10 games. So it kind of shows you, you know, the Jays kind of creeping back up now on the hot streak. And, of course, the Orioles leveling off a bit. Once again, it is nowhere close to being done, but they're on the right track, and that's why I think uh, what you said is clearly nothing wrong Nothing wrong with what you said whatsoever, the fact that they're on this way right now. Of course, you look at it, you feel a lot better in terms of being four and a half games up uh, on the Orioles, and it just makes you feel a lot better about where you currently stand. And it, that number, you know, there was one goal, 
as much as, again, we predicted a split, kind of the worst case scenario, you're coming out of the, that series, nothing changed in terms of where things stand in the standings. But you exceed, or at least they exceeded our expectations and a few others who probably predicted the same thing in terms of a split. All of a sudden now it looks even better. You have four and a half games to work with. You want to make that even bigger. It's not like you're kind of, you see four and a half games and all of a sudden you're cool with it. It's a building block after what you saw this week. You build off of that, make the number higher, and again, make sure that last series at the end of the season back in Baltimore means nothing. That's the goal for me, and that really should be the thing that they're focusing on uh, down the stretch run here the last couple weeks. I don't think by 95% Jay's ending the Orioles season, or at least odds at the playoffs, aren't that far off because it's kind of backed up by the numbers. The only projection system we have that updates immediately after the game so that we have that is accurate as of now at the end of the three of four against Baltimore the Blue Jays according to 538 have a 93% odds of making the playoffs that's up from the last time we talked I think it was 83% before this series started and the Orioles right now are down to a 9% chance of making the playoffs according to 538 so maybe not quite 95% or I guess 5% odds of making the playoffs for the Orioles but It's pretty darn close, so I think the Jays have certainly made big strides. But I will say, as a caveat, the projection system is aside. We know how fast things can change this season, and we know the Jays could head to Texas hot as ever and then somehow manage to get swept. We just know that's the way the Jays work this season, and if they get swept in Texas, Baltimore sweeps their next series, we're back to a a one-and-a-half game in lead in the wild card, and anything can happen, right? So we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I think – the odds are good that the Blue Jays just took a big step forward in the wildcard race. And certainly the numbers reflect that four and a half games up as things stand now. And now I think as much as I don't think the the battle between second wildcard and third wildcard matters all that much because you're playing against the road. I think the battle between first and second wildcard matters a lot because you're battling for home field advantage. Um, That's what the Blue Jays' eyes are on right now. They're looking to pick off Seattle, which is a half game ahead of the Jays, and of course Tampa Bay, a game and a half ahead of the Jays. They're in first place in the wildcard race right now. So that's what your eyes are on now. You can't totally discount Baltimore, as we've talked about, but um, I think the Jays are starting the process of putting them in the rearview mirror, and this series went a long way towards doing that. Um, Okay, on to the next controversy, Tuesday's game which is one of the the wilder games you'll ever watch. Um, it's the type of game that you pray that your team is in a pennant race so you can watch a game like this because it had everything. And let's just go chronologically here. Let's start in the seventh inning. Teoscar Hernandez hits a ground ball, grounds into a double play. He's running back towards the Blue Jays' dugout. And he kind of crosses paths a little bit with the pitcher, Brian Baker. And from what we understand, Brian Baker said something to Teoscar Hernandez. Who knows if the Jays were chirping Baker earlier in that inning. Who knows, or earlier in the series. But it looks like Baker says something to Teo. Teo's kind of confused, laughing it off, saying, Look, you got me to ground into a double play. What are you chirping at? And then... Teo goes to sit down. We didn't catch that live on the broadcast. I don't think anyone saw it live time. And then at the end of the inning, Dan Schulman is throwing to commercial break and Brian Baker walks off the mound and kind of gives a, you know, a keep talking hand 
um, to the Blue Jays dugout and things just kind of erupt from there. The Jays dugout clears, Baltimore follows, the bullpens run in. We don't really get a real brawl. I'd call it more of an altercation on the field, but tempers were flying. We saw Teo trying to get a hold of Baker. Um, he had to be held back. I think it was Rootnet Odor who held back. I don't know if it was Teo or if it was Vladdy, but what a out of all people, yeah, what a wild guy to play peacekeeper against the Blue Jays. But um, it was a wild instance to be sure. And I think what makes this entire story even crazier is the fact that Brian Baker was a Blue Jay last year. He was with the Jays in spring training, pit, spent most of his time in AAA, but made it up to the majors for one game. Um, and that sort of dynamic where this guy played with these guys last year and is now on an opposing team and chirping them over seemingly nothing. Again, I don't think we totally know the full story, but if there was more on the Jays side that would have caused us, I think we would have heard of it from the Baltimore side of things. So I don't know. Interesting. I'm just waiting for the John Boy break it, breakdown to come out because that's going to be golden. And you know, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. But um, yeah, wild dynamic. And just my first question to you about this, I want you to rate the three comebacks that we got from the Jays and the quotes that we got because I think these are all iconic and it's tough to pick which one is better. So I'm going to read them out to you. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., he said, quote, do you think you're a superhero? About Brian Baker. Second one, Jordan Romano said, personally, I wouldn't be chirping the guys that have scored on me. That's Jordan Romano. And then the third one is unattributed. Some guy in the Jabes clubhouse, according to Arash Madani, he said, best thing that guy ever did was win the March Madness pool. Of those three chirps that we got, which do you think is the best? I mean, that last one's got to be the yeah, best in terms of the March Madness <laughs> pool. That has to be. Um, I like the Romano one second as well because I think it makes a lot of sense. And, of course, the Vladi one, I mean, it also they, they all make sense. So that's that's the thing that you had me going with there. And I also was going to mention, you already mentioned John Boy, but I like what you were doing. You were doing the John Boy impersonation of kind of <laughs> trying to figure out what Hernandez was saying to him. So credit to you for that one. So because we all know how good of he is at his breakdowns. And of course it's going to, if he does want to on that altercation, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. But, you know, I agree with you on the fact that we don't know the entire story on this, but at the same time, for me and for all of us just watching this team every day and kind of knowing how the dugout is and like just getting a somewhat of a taste. Of course, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but kind of seeing how they are in the dugout or whatever, it just it makes you very it makes it very hard to believe that they would try and instigate a guy like Brian Baker or just anything like that because again, you don't really see them do that with people. Of course, there's been a couple, you know, altercations this year in terms of the bench clearing. There was one against the Red Sox uh, earlier in the year. Um, I think, I can't remember, I think it was with Nick Pavetta. There was someone, there was another one other than that, but all of those kind of, oh, and it was also Alec Manoa with the Red Sox, but those are all kind of, it just felt like it was something where it was kind of more about, I guess, the game's results, or a lot of it too was people mouthing off at the Jays' dugout, but nothing that I remember in terms of them being instigators or kind of being known for that um, is also kind of why I don't see, 
you know, I can understand the confusion with the guy like Brian Baker in terms of that. So I talked about it. He's definitely more relevant than he was as a Jay now. And they all, the one thing that they also showed on that broadcast about that double play, and it was also very crucial in this breakdown of kind of us investigating, trying to figure out as much as we can with this story, is that there was no need for him to cover first base on that double play. It was just a basic double play. And it shows him jogging towards first base. In other words, he's looking for it. Um, as much as he started saying something to Oscar Hernandez, he did. But he was looking for this beforehand. This was something that he had in his mind. Okay, double play. This is my chance. I'm going to go up to him right now, and I'm going to say something. That's number one in terms of a red flag. Of course, another red flag is that Teoscar Hernandez took him deep the night before in the first doubleheader game, I believe. Uh, it was in the seventh or the eighth inning when he did that. So there's another thing. The third thing is kind of a quote from what John Schneider said in terms of, you know, we, we he was part of our team once and we don't know why he's all of a sudden acting up like this in terms of, you know, this is not, I guess, what we remember him like. And that's another thing that Teoscar Hernandez was saying is that when they were teammates, they were cool. So and the other, and another thing from what John Schneider said, this is number four, is that this is also something that apparently he's been doing all season to them, which, of course, it would make sense if that's true because of the amount of times they play each other. But it's just something that I guess the team's always kind of brushed off or kind of ignored in a way as much as they saw it. And that's something that John Schneider acknowledges that he's been doing it all season to them when they've been playing each other. So... I don't know if it's some sort of bad blood in terms of why he was put on waivers. I don't know why he's complaining about the fact that he was put on waivers. It's just something that I guess it was a quiet move made where I guess the Jays just needed room for something. Probably something with the 40. Like, I can't even remember why he was put on waivers. So it had, you know, my initial guess, it had something to do with the 40-man roster or something like that. I know it was something made, I believe, in the offseason before... Um, the lockout began again. I can't even remember the exact time he was put on waivers. So that just shows how much we don't really remember too much of the Brian Baker era with all due respect to him as much as I can, even though I think that he's, he was definitely wrong in that altercation. And it makes sense also because, you know, when we, when they showed him originally kind of doing this to them in terms of keep talking, a part of me was like, there's no way that's the only reason why they got them to react like that. I don't know if he, you know, at first you kind of speculate, did he say something to them, offensive or whatever? But, you know, it just, after kind of hearing what they said after the game in terms of something boiling up, kind of slowly throughout the year that he's been doing all year, it was only a matter of time before things were going to eventually escalate. As much as maybe it seemed like it was harmless from him, um, the fact that he kept repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, I don't know why he expected nothing less from a reaction. And, of course, when the dug the dugouts cleared, he was the first guy to go back into the other other dugout when all of them clearly wanted, you know, clearly wanted to go up to him in terms of Teoscar Hernandez, who had his jersey pretty much ripped off um, trying to go to him. So just a lot of funny stuff going on from that one. But that's another altercation where it's just you, you look back and you just wonder, like, what, like, what are you doing? Like, honestly, in, in a game like that, there's no... I just don't understand why he's taking his frustration out on the dugout when Teoscar Hernandez is not the reason why he was sent on waivers. And I don't even think John Schneider was a reason for when he was sent on waivers because at the time, of course, he wasn't the manager. And second of all, I don't really know how much input they have on, you know, 40-man roster decisions that sometimes don't even affect your major league roster. So there's a lot going on with that. That's another thing I kind of question is they are not the reason why you were put on waivers. Um you're kind of looking at the wrong people for that. 
And, you know, you're on a situation where you get to pitch every day for the Baltimore Orioles as much as they have turned their expectations around. And even if they don't make the playoffs, you have to look back and say this was one of the biggest surprises of the season. The fact that they turned around this quickly and they acknowledge that they do have a bright future. You had an opportunity. You have an opportunity to be in that bullpen every day. There shouldn't be any bad blood um, towards a former team or anything like that. Because if he was on this team, I don't even think he'd be a lock to be in this bullpen. Uh, and we've said enough about how this bullpen isn't exactly the greatest anyway. I'm just saying on that with all due respect. And I think that he was the instigator in this throughout the rest of the or throughout the entire season. And I just don't understand why he didn't expect any sort of reaction. And I'm glad that they reacted the way they did in terms of just showing again, you know, having each other's back or whatnot. And they were talking about that on the broadcast. Um, pretty much this could, you know, bring a group even closer together. And then I even said it even before when we were talking about Alec Manoa, you saw him staring the Orioles dugout down even after that loss yesterday. And you had a, you just had a feeling that he was going to come out today on all cylinders, and that's exactly what he did. And in his post game interview as well, just showing them what's up or showing him what's up, especially, um, you you can't complain about it at all in terms of the follow from it, and I think especially how the team reacted the night after. Yeah, for sure. And you talking about kind of the history of Brian Baker with the Jays and pitching with the Orioles against the Blue Jays. There's a phenomenal Twitter thread by uh, Chris Black, which by the way, if you don't follow Chris Black on Twitter. Go follow Chris Black on Twitter because every day it seems like he's putting out phenomenal threads on a lot of pitching stuff, a lot of analysis of whether people are tipping pitches or different pitch usage or velocity upticks and a whole bunch of different stuff. Bottom line, follow him on Twitter. He's at down to black on Twitter. He's a Sportsnet producer, I think. Phenomenal follow. Bottom line, he put out a thread which has a bunch of clips of Baker previously this season pitching against the Blue Jays and it erupted in this series, but it does seem like there was some bad blood going on there and some animosity from Brian Baker towards the Blue Jays over the course of the season. So obviously, maybe, you know, like we haven't seen him pitch that much in the major league. So maybe this is just who he is. Maybe he's just an animated guy and he is, you know, kind of like the Alec Manoa type. He likes to, I don't know if pick fights is the right word, but express himself on the mound and not shy away from being aggressive and celebrating and there's nothing wrong with that but when you start to direct it towards one specific team and chirping their dugout and telling them to keep talking when it doesn't seem like the Blue Jays were really doing that much things don't totally add up here so I think it might be a little bit conspiracy minded but I think in my mind the most likely answer to all of this confusion is just the fact that Brian Baker has some animosity between himself and the Blue Jays from when they put him on waivers, which would certainly was nothing personal, certainly not a decision made by the players on the team on the roster for the Blue Jays that he's chirping on the other side of the diamond. I don't know. It's a weird situation, but it's always fun to have this kind of bad blood put in between there. And you mentioned, you know, the brawl kind of brawl in air quotes, breaking out, and then Brian Baker kind of backing off and not being involved. It reminded me of what happened between Alec Manoa and I think it was Andrew Benintendi at Yankee Stadium, where Benintendi, maybe it wasn't Benintendi. Garrett Cole, Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole, that's who it was, yes. The Audi sign. Yeah, walk past the Audi sign next time. Exactly, it reminded me of that when Brian Baker instigates all of this, seems to 
have a fire under his ass about all this stuff and then doesn't get involved in the fight. Like if you're going to get upset, if you're going to be chirping the opposing dugout, be ready for the re- the ramifications and be ready to be involved in the fight because there's going to be a fight that you started. So anyways, fun to watch. Lots of drama between the Jays and the Blue Jays, or the Jays and the Orioles. And of course, we'll be looking forward to the next time Brian Baker pitches, which could be the next series Baltimore has against the Blue Jays. Baltimore's coming to Toronto on, uh, looks like the 16th, 16th through 18th. It's a weekend series. Not this weekend, of course, because the Jays are going to Texas. But next weekend, Baltimore is going to be in Toronto. Then, of course, they have the final series of the season in Baltimore. So, Six more games, lots more opportunity to Brian Baker for Brian Baker to chirp the Jays, and maybe some punches get thrown. Who knows? Um, okay, the next controversy. This one is a lot less to unpack, I think. But um, Jeff Nelson behind the plate, terrible calls, and John Schneider just had enough and let Jeff Nelson hear it and got his money's worth. I don't think I've ever seen John Schneider really – any manager at the major league level uh, have cheeks that red while he's arguing with an umpire, but um, that's the situation John Schneider was in. I, I think we can skip past this one because it's pretty understandable. Jeff Nelson, Jeff Nelson, terrible strike zone, and there's not much more to say besides that. We saw it earlier this year with the, when he was behind the plate for uh, Jay's Oakland game at the Rogers Center. Jeff Nelson is just not a good umpire and we saw that evidence by the bot call we saw that evidence by the strike calls um on tuesday night um the thing that i want to focus on here because we've had a conversation about this before on the podcast is the home plate call with alejandro kirk um and it ends up not really mattering because the blue jays lose by more than one run at the end of it but alejandro kirk doesn't have the ball moves into the base path without having the ball and I guess without moving to catch the ball and he catches the ball and then he moves out of the base path to give the base runner a lane to the plate and you know the base runner is out by a mile it's not even close the throw beats him maybe by 10 feet if we're being conservative probably more like 15 feet it's nowhere close and Alejandro Kirk moves his knee out of the way. He gives him space to get to the plate. And what the umpires determine on replay review is that no, Alejandro Kirk didn't give the runner a lane to the plate. He was blocking the plate without the ball and without the throw, taking him into the runner's base path and they call the runner safe. And, you know, just right off the top, like this is, you know, quote unquote, the Buster Posey rule. This is a good rule. It saves catchers from brutal collisions at home plate. You know, the one in Blue Jays history that will live in infamy is the collision with Buck Martinez where he broke both his legs because of a collision at home plate. We don't want that in the game. That's not good. The Buster Posey rule is a good addition to baseball. What we've seen this season especially is the application of it and the way the, you know, to use the quote, the letter of the law is written is not the spirit of what was intended. This was intended to stop collisions at home plate, but still allow for competitive bang-bang plays at home plate where we're having a relay throw from the outfield or the infield come home and it's exciting and it's thrilling. Instead, we're getting situations where 
the catcher takes, you know, puts his foot an inch to the right instead of an inch to the left, and a throw that beats the runner by 15 feet is negated by that fact. So the spirit of this rule is good, but it needs to be rewritten because the point we're at now where runners are dead to rights and somehow called safe on replay review is just absolutely ridiculous. And it is going to cost a team in the playoffs and it's going to be ugly. And Major League Baseball needs to, at the very least, reconsider how they're applying this rule and hopefully in a perfect world this offseason, reconsider the rule all entirely and rewrite it to make it make more sense, make it more applicable to the situations they are trying to minimize. Yeah, and I think like the problem is nobody even truly knows, I guess, the rule like you're talking about it, and that's why it is so controversial. Of course, the Jays were on the other you know, the other end of pretty much of this uh, a couple weeks ago when they were in Minnesota. So, you know, we've seen it go this way, and we also saw it go the other way last night. And I think they're just as much as you kind of as much as they do their best to detail the rule. Um, of course, what they were trying to do in the broadcast, and that's exactly what they're doing. Of course, showing Alejandro Kirk and basically coming to the conclusion that when he kind of transitioned from the base path to foul, you know, foul area, he did it correctly although he did it too slow. So, of course, at the end of the day, he didn't do the rule correctly, I should say, to make that simple. As much as he was on his way to doing it or he had the right intentions, he didn't do it fast enough. And I don't know really how much that would have impacted the slide at home because there was still quite a a big distance before that happened. Um, I don't even think Rutschman started sliding when he made that transition still but the fact is they know the rule they know how controversial it is um that's why they were all over the umpire basically after that call to take a look when him and brandon hyde were all over uh jeff nelson to take a look at that or pretty much you know go to the review they know how controversial it is so it's a rule like you said has to be modified in some sort of way this offseason because of how confusing it's been. There's been many other instances where it happened, and that day in Minnesota when the Jays were on the receiving end of it when it went their way, I believe the Orioles even had a situation that same day when they were playing in their game. So there's not, you know, there's been more than one situation this year where that's happened, but it just, of course, it's happened to the Jays twice now, and you worry about that for a playoff series like you were talking about it down the stretch. What if that happens in a playoff game? How are you going to determine what truly is the right call? And even though technically what Alejandro Kirk, Kirk did by the rulebook was wrong, in the same way, you like what is he truly doing wrong though? Other than clearly still making a base path moving over, but based off the rulebook, it was too slow, and that's pretty much what the determination was. So it wasn't as I don't like as much as again, we're, we're spitting at something that we don't even know the true, true detail with, and I don't even know if Major League Baseball knows the true ruling with this as well, which is why it has to be modified. When you look back at that twin series when Whit Merrifield was sliding, that one, as much as, you know, probably there's a good number of people that didn't think that should have went the Jays' way, it just, to me, that looked more convincing in terms of blocking the plate than this situation did. And this situation, of course, went against the Jays with Alejandro Kirk. It just seemed like when Whit Merrifield was sliding on Gary Sanchez in that game in Minnesota, you know, as much as what Gary Sanchez was doing probably wasn't even wrong if you ask him, you know, any sort of catcher. Um, it just looked like he was blocking the plate more than what Alejandro Kirk was doing uh, a couple days ago when he did that on Adley Rutschman. So 
that's just my opinion from what I've seen. Of course, there's so many other opinions on it who pretty much, again, believe that in that twin series, the Jays got away with one. In this series, maybe the Orioles got away with one. In this case, that went against the Jays. There truly isn't a meaning behind it, and the fact that catchers don't even truly know what to do in that situation um, is obviously even more concerning. And I think Pat Tabler had a sarcastic answer pretty much saying when they were showing Kirk transition, of course, again, too slow for the rule book, you know, he was pretty much sarcastically saying, like, what do you want him to do in that situation when the throw takes you over pretty much into the home plate area like it did yesterday when he did that, you know, and he made the joke of pretty much running up the base pass. So I don't know if one day you'll see a catcher try that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, but it's just something that needs to be modified. And the fact is, what he did at home plate didn't impact the run whatsoever from scoring or not scoring because he would have been out by a mile by the throw. You talked about it. The throw beat him by a mile. He likely would have been out by a mile even if he didn't move. But that's the most frustrating part is that it didn't change the run just like, you know, in terms of a clear change. It just, the fact is the transition of foul territory or the home away from the home plate area, something like that was too slow, even though he did it. So that's basically how confusing the ruling is. Uh, it's something that I guess for the rest of the year you kind of have to hope and pray it doesn't happen in the playoff game. Uh, and especially if the Jays are in a playoff game, you don't want that happening whatsoever, no matter who's on the receiving end of it. Because at this case, it's shown that this is truly a 50-50 coin flip uh, in terms of how it's going to go. So it's got to be modified in the offseason with the clear ruling. And I'm confident it eventually will be ruled. But my main concern is the rest of the season. We're getting to a point where like softball or three pitch rules of having a separate base for the runner to go to and a separate base for the catcher to step on home where that makes more sense than the situation we're in now where you're having the throw beat the runner by five seconds and the runner still be called safe. So something has to be reassessed um, bottom line and you pray that it does not lead to a team losing in the playoffs because that's going to lead to Hall hell breaking loose, certainly, across Major League Baseball. Okay, um, can't believe we haven't brought it up until now, and we don't really have time to talk about it because we still have other stuff to get to, but we got to mention Bo Bichette because the series he just had was not only incredible, but also history-making. He goes just... Backing up his last four games in this series, three for five in game one of the Monday doubleheader, three for five in game two of the Monday doubleheader with three home runs. Game three of this series, he goes four for five, eight total bases with a double and another home run. And then game four today, Wednesday, he only gets one hit, or excuse me, he doesn't get any hit, but he gets a run because he got on base. Uh, what a series from Bo Bichette. We talked about how he was heating up last week or last episode, and he had that phenomenal series against Pittsburgh. But what he did this series was to borrow the Blue Jays hashtag next level. And if he can stay this hot for at least a week, at least a couple weeks, the Blue Jays are in good position to get to the playoffs. But I don't want to spend too much time on him because I feel like we spoke about him last time, and we have more to get to. Most notably, the roster moves that the Blue Jays made today Mitch White had a terrible start. They sent him down. We don't know who's going to be taking a spot in the rotation. The Jays do have an off day tomorrow or today as you're listening to this on Thursday, but they have a doubleheader coming up against the Tampa Bay Rays. So my question to you, who do you see filling this rotation spot right now? Do the Jays call up Mitch White as that 
29th guy on the roster and use him? Or do they try to put Yusei Kikuchi back into the rotation? Or do they lean on someone like Casey Lawrence who's already on the roster? How do they fill this spot that they need to fill in the rotation? And was it the right decision to give up on Mitch White so early? This is this is a tough one uh, because we know that outside of Mitch White, there really isn't anyone uh, other than what you talked about. There's Yusei Kikuchi and there's Casey Lawrence who's an option. Both, or uh, at least Casey Lawrence is now option of the minors. But of course, Kikuchi's in the bullpen. I have a really hard time seeing him going back into the starting rotation. I don't. I of course. At this case, because of how low the depth is, it's something that, of course, could definitely happen. But for me, I have a really hard time seeing him go back in the rotation. But, of course, the thing that contradicts that is now with Mitch White, who was a complete disaster, obviously, in what happened yesterday in Game 2. And it was really bizarre kind of how quickly it just fell for him because he was with two pretty much through two innings. He looked really good, and he kind of had the feeling, okay, this is it, where he kind of finally settles down. It kind of pitches to what, you know, the Jays expect him to pitch, and I think what we all expected him to pitch at, and that wasn't the case. He couldn't get a guy out, and honestly, was probably, or was the reason, obviously, for that five-run third inning, and was the reason for the Jays falling behind and never really could have, or could have just never get back into the game from there. So, the only way he can come back, like you said, is for that doubleheader as the 29th guy, because now he has to be down for a certain amount of time in the minor leagues. And I kind of was, <coughs> sorry, um, a little shocked when he did get sent down, just because of the, just knowing that there's not a lot of options behind him for that case. So it wouldn't be shocking to see him come back up for that start. Um, I, It's still hard for me to kind of predict of what's going to happen with that. Of course, like you said, there's Casey Lawrence who can come up, but, <coughs> and there's also the idea of doing another bullpen day like that. So not a lot of options, even though I don't think anything's, as much as they may have an idea of what to do, um, just you can see this going in so many different ways because of that. So for that, I don't know if I want to say a bullpen game again on that day. Um, it just for me, it'd be weird to send him down, but call him back up as the 29th guy because you don't. Like, I don't think he can get really a start in between that with Buffalo. Um, I don't know if the days line up for that whatsoever. One, two, three, four, or maybe they. Yeah, I don't I don't know if they can because of course he did pitch yesterday, so you're not going to throw him out there right away in Buffalo. So that's where it confuses me with that. And again with Yusei Kuchi, I just I don't I just have a hard time thinking that that's what they're going to go back down that road. And it just feels like for me it's more likely Casey Lawrence gets a start than Yusei Kikuchi. And then if you're kind of narrowing that down be- between a Casey Lawrence or a Mitch White again, I, I think I'd rely more on a bullpen or a bullpen day with maybe Casey Lawrence contributing in some sort of factor on that and a ball curl. Of course, Yusei Kikuchi most likely in that way as well. Um, I just, for me, I don't think Mitch White will be starting in that doubleheader game after that move today. Yeah, I think you're right that the most likely scenario is probably a bullpen day that features some combination of Lawrence going two to three innings and Kikuchi going two to three innings and then relying on the rest of the bullpen depending on where you are, like maybe it's high leverage guys, or if you're losing that game by a lot, maybe it's low leverage guys. But bottom line, I think that's the most likely scenario because I don't see the Blue Jays calling up Mitch White so soon. Like maybe they call him up as that 29th man, but I really don't see him starting the game. I think if they call him up as a 29th man, maybe he's another long guy out of the bullpen that they can rely on for the doubleheader. But I don't see him starting the game if they're kind of giving up on him right now. And ultimately... 
like I think it is right decision. We talked about this last time, but he's a long-term project for the Blue Jays. And if he's not performing now, I don't think it's the end of the world. It's all right. He is with this team until 2028. So you don't have to hinge all of your hopes and prayers on his performance this season. And don't throw him out there every time if it's going to be a mistake. Give him time to develop within this system to do what you want him to do. So, yeah, I'm fine with the decision. Yeah, he got unlucky in his first few starts, but this start against Baltimore, I don't think he really got that unlucky. It was just kind of a bad scenario for him. And, you know, you can blame it on luck all you want, but when you have three to four starts in a row where you're giving up six, seven, eight runs, you got to start at some point taking some accountability and stop blaming the defense. Not that Mitch White did that at all, but that's kind of our excuses that we made for Mitch White's performance so far. So um, that's that. I think it's interesting that Marino is back up, especially after his briefs and earlier this season. It'll be interesting to see how much playing time he gets. I know Zach Collins was claimed off waivers by the Pittsburgh Pirates, so he's no longer in the organization. So rest in peace to the iconic W tweets after Jays wins. We will be missing those dearly, but... Um, and then Zach Pop, of course, we talked about the possibility of him coming up previously. So it's good to see him on the roster. Fun to see what situations he'll get into. I think he'll start with low leverage. I think he has a potential, depending how he pitches, to work his way up to high leverage by the time, you know, the first week of October rolls around and hopefully deeper into October for the Blue Jays. Um, okay. Last thing to mention before we sign off, brief standings update and, and, or, We've been talking about the standings all episode, but brief playoff odds update. We talked about 538, which has been updated for today. Again, the Blue Jays have 93% odds to make the playoffs, according to them. 3% odds to win the division, then 4% odds to win the World Series. Um, Neither Fangraphs nor Baseball Reference have updated after the results of today, but we can take the results of the previous three games of the series Blue Jays, according to Fangraphs, 97.9% chance to make the playoffs and a 7.1% chance to win the World Series. So they're much more optimistic on World Series odds than 538 is. Pretty similar with playoff odds. And then baseball reference continues to just boggle my mind. Again, it hasn't updated for today. So we're looking at yesterday's results. It has the Blue Jays postseason odds at 73.3%. Which, okay, whatever. But the one-day percentage change, again, so this is a change from when the Blue Jays won both games of the doubleheader to when they lost against Baltimore in Game 3 of the series was minus 12.6%, and the change for Baltimore was plus 10.9%. So that one loss after sweeping a doubleheader accounted for a subtraction of 12% of the Blue Jays playoff odds, which I find just ridiculous. Um, especially given the fact that the Jays at that point had a three and a half game lead for the wild card. And you subtract 12% for one loss and you have the Jays at 73% odds with 25 games left. Um, I don't know. I have a conspiracy theory because we know baseball reference uses the previous 100 games to kind of map out the odds of the Blue Jays making the postseason. We're at, you know, about, I think it's a 137-game mark in the season, thereabouts. Subtract 100 games from that, you're looking at 30 games into the season. The Jays had a phenomenal April, and then 
had a terrible May, terrible June. So the conspiracy part of my brain is saying that baseball reference is no longer considering the phenomenal April when they're making the projections. Now they're just starting like partway through May when they're making the projections, looking at the previous 100 games. So maybe that's why they're no longer as high on the Blue Jays as sites like Fangraphs and sites like 538 are. I don't know. It's weird that they discount the Blue Jays that much. Um, I think Fangraphs is probably a bit too optimistic. I don't know if it's at like 98% and a 7.1% odds to win the World Series, but baseball reference man get on the train get on the hype train a little bit here i that's just way too confusing for me to try and understand like you were talking about with baseball reference of how any of that makes sense um yeah i mean you're looking at fan graphs you're looking at 538 i think those two obviously make a lot more sense and probably more reasonable to or at least 538 because we haven't really seen the fan graphs update yet but if it was at 95 percent before this series like you're right. It has to be close to 100% then. Like, there, I mean, there's not much more room to go up before you go to 100%. So maybe that's why the 5381 might be reasonable now because I did support the 95, but if it gets close to 100, of course, that's hard. That's pretty hard for me to support because nothing is written in stone yet um, because there's still lots of games to be played. Like you were talking about, it. still almost a, over 20 games to go or, yeah, over 20 games to go actually. So, you know, that's why there's so much time to go with that one and for 538, and Fangraphs who update, I guess, faster than Baseball Reference, but they definitely do it, you know, they definitely do their predictions or the way, and we talked about that last episode of how they do it, but they definitely do it a lot more reasonable, in my opinion, than Baseball Reference does. So that's why I've always kind of been, even with, I guess, player numbers in terms of projections in the winter, I've never really just understood sometimes where they come from in terms of Baseball Reference. But of course, we all love the sight of what they do. It's just... To me, I'm more definitely on board with the Fangraphs uh, predictions and, of course, behind that as well with the 538. So I'm curious to see that number, though, on Fangraphs tomorrow morning. And um, I guess it's something that we can kind of look back or kind of look on to the rest of the way as we talk about these standings at the end of the year. All right. To wrap it all up, three games against the Texas Rangers at Globe Life Field in Texas. Who are you taking? So two at, well, two, sorry, three games coming up with the, the Rangers, of course. Ross Stripling starts. At home, he was talking about all the tickets that he's got to give away. You have Kevin Gosman lined up for Saturday. Sunday is interesting because there's no listed starter there um, for that. You know, the Jays had a really good series. Um, the Rangers are another prim- or, or a team that definitely hasn't been good over the course of the season. I'm going to – I'll do it. I'll, I'll say they sweep the Rangers. Oh. I'll do it. Wow, that would be huge. Uh yeah, the Rangers suck. They've won one of their last 10 games, <laughs> and they're, I think it's somewhere like 16 or 17 games below 500. I don't know if I'm confident enough to say a sweep. I'm going to go two of three. Uh, I think a sweep would be incredible because then I don't know who the Orioles are facing in their next series, but you have to think that the Blue Jays are probably gaining a game or two on Baltimore. They might. The Red Sox. Okay. Yeah, I think the Red Sox will probably win one of three of those that series. So if the Jays swept against Texas, then they would gain a game on Baltimore and then probably gain a game on Tampa Bay and Seattle as well. Although Seattle, you know, both those teams have been extremely hot. All three of the top three wildcard teams are eight and two in their last 10 games. So, but if the Jays sweep, I think they probably gain a game on pretty much everyone. So that's best case scenario, but I'll take two of three. I'm a little bit more conservative than you. Um, but okay. 
we'll wrap it up there. Lots to talk about this week, and we'll have lots to talk about when we come back at the end of this road trip after the series in Texas. We're looking forward to it. Um, as always, you can support our podcast by going to patreon.com slash section138pod. You can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can find us on social media at section138pod. And we will be back after this series against the Texas Rangers. Easy.